You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. following is part one of a multi-part series focusing on the intelligence aspects of the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. We're joined today by Barbara Sood, who is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. She joined RAND after more than 30 years of the U.S. government, primarily at CIA, where she specialized in analysis of sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and counterterrorism. She received a BS in Arabic studies from Georgetown, and her PhD in Near Eastern Studies with a concentration in Islamic intellectual history from Princeton University. Thank you, Barbara, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Oh, you're welcome. So I ask this question a lot to former practitioners, to people who spent a career at CIA, because we do have a lot of people who are college students or grad students or people at the very beginning of their professional lives thinking about a career in intelligence. So what drew you to CIA as a career in the first place? You didn't go the academic route. Like so many people with PhDs, I'm, I agree with that. I didn't go it either. So what brought you to CIA in the first place? Well, actually, it was to get a job. <laughs> the situation in that era was bad for PhDs, even in Near Eastern Studies. Uh, there were very few departments. So I was looking for a job, and uh, I thought, well, I did work in, in academia for a couple of years, but then I thought, well, I can't really find a really good position. So I'll look around, apply to the government. I, I have Arabic language, so why not try it? So I went down to downtown Manhattan, and we took the various tests they give you, my friend and I, and uh, that's how I ended up at the agency. And this is, this is during the Cold War, not the age you or anything like that. But yes. at most people at the agency, were they still thinking Cold War great power threats? Was, was what you did a bit of a niche at CIA? Yes, I think so. Um, of course, the Middle East crisis was always important, uh, but uh, there was definitely uh, the Soviet and bloc, whatever, mm -hmm. Soviet bloc threat was very important. And that was something I wasn't really familiar with because right. I specialized in medieval Islamic studies. But, well, when it came to the Middle East, we saw those great powers operating in the Middle East as well. So I worked on... Uh, the Arab press uh, issues first, you know, something I knew, and then I worked my way up into analysis later. Well, for some people at first, ancient Islamic theory might not seem to translate necessarily into modern intelligence. But as a lot of people know, many of the in the extremist community, 
might as well be in the ancient period. I mean, it's not like Islam itself, at least at the fundamentalist level, has changed very much in the last several hundred years. Well, um, it's changed some, and it's changed in the modern era. Um, well, it always was changing and morphing over time from the earliest days, from 622 when Muhammad uh, first had his, um, well, from the time the Muslim state, uh, the beginning of their calendar, from the um, move by uh, Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. Uh, so there have been a number of uh, uh, theologians over the years, uh, legal scholars over the years, and but in the modern era there was an attempt to combine um, somewhat nationalism, political theory with anti-colonialism, and it led to some rethinking about Islam. And so what we're dealing with is uh, today is an extremist version of that. There were reformers who weren't extremists. There were reformers who eschewed violence. But some of these people turned toward violence as the only solution to the crisis for Muslims after colonialism. In 1995, the CIA did something relatively unheard of, is they, they formed a essentially a station uh, that wasn't geographically focused. It wasn't focused in a, a, a capital of a nation. It was a station focused on a person, uh, so-called Alex Station, which focused entirely on a, a new threat most Americans hadn't heard of in 1995. Most people outside of probably your own little world hadn't heard of Osama bin Laden at this point. And along with people like Gina Bennett and Jennifer Matthews, uh, you joined this group at a very early period. So how did that come about? What finally made CIA decide that this person was dangerous enough that we really need to start focusing attention on, on him? Well, I want to correct you that mm. I wasn't part of that station. I was mm. an analyst, and that was a separate unit from the people in the uh, station, which was Alex Station, which was more operationally focused. Mm. However... Um, we could see after the uh, Afghan war, I didn't work on uh, the issue as early as the Afghan war, on, at least on terrorism, but um, the Afghan-Soviet war. But um, we saw bin Laden as a financier of terrorists. So he was known for that. He was operating from Sudan originally. And uh, there came to be a thought we could follow the money so that's why this operational unit was established. Now, I joined a little later on that particular account uh, after the Africa bombings in 1998. But I knew those people, and I knew about al-Qaeda from several years earlier working on Middle East issues. This has been uh, seen as uh, they called the sisterhood. This has been you know, a group of women... Um, that uh, in the old boys club of the CIA, and it still is to an agree, to degree, do you think that you and those others like Gina Bennett, Cindy Storr, Jennifer Matthews, were taken less seriously because you were women, or was it the subject matter itself just something that CIA wasn't ready to embrace and to pay attention to? The subject matter of terrorism wasn't taken as seriously as some other subjects, I believe, at the time. It was kind of a secondary field. Now, you have to understand, too, how the U.S. government works. Usually things are set up by country or region, so it's based on geography. 
Um, and at the State Department, you have people who are desk officers mm. for certain countries, and we send ambassadors to those countries, or we worry about countries that we're not friendly with. So it's country by country. So where does a topical issue like terrorism fit? It tends to go to the bottom of the pile or just be, well, since after we finish discussing these politics, now we'll get to these other issues like what about the terrorist attack that just happened, something like that. Right. So that, uh, that's the way I picture it. So I think... Maybe some women, but it wasn't all women. Right. I, I object to that. I object to positive as well as negative <laughs> stereotyping. Um, and where I was working as an analyst, there were certainly quite a few men. But there isn't a possibility that there were women in certain positions because it was a lesser job right. to have. But those women got ahead over time. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they all are household names for many of us now. Um, I know, unlike what some people claim with bad information, that CIA didn't support bin Laden directly or train him during the anti-Soviet war. That's been a misperception that a lot of people had. But was there any institutional knowledge shared from veterans of that campaign to the group that was now focusing on bin Laden and Islamic terrorism in this area of the world? Like, did were there lessons learned from those who had worked like from like a Milt Bearden or for someone else who had worked the Afghan desk the during the Soviet period? Well, I don't think the U.S. government ever stopped following some of these Afghan veterans. Um, the Afghan Arabs is what they came to be called. And you may recall there was an attack on the World Trade Center in mm -hmm. 1993. There was the uh, plot to attack landmarks in New York City that the uh, blind so-called blind sheikh Omar Abdurrahman was arrested for and tried and convicted. Um, so people were following international mujahideen is what they call themselves. Mm -hmm. They thought them, of themselves as Islamic fighters for a higher cause and the uh, CIA and other intelligence agencies were certainly following this along with pol the policy community to an extent. But, of course, the policy community had other priorities that may be higher at the time. Bin Laden actually founded al-Qaeda. This will surprise a lot of people. All the way back in 1988, at the end of the war with the Soviets, uh, he spent a lot of time from them consolidating power. But I want to ask you, as somebody who'd spent a lot of time studying him, what made him such an effective leader? How was he able to rise out of uh, everybody else uh, and become who we all know and hate today? Uh, is it just money, or was there something about bin Laden that made him charismatic, that made him an effective and natural leader from the beginning? I think he was very charismatic. Um, he also was a role model in that he had come out of a wealthy family and yet lived the tough life. Um, you may have read many of these stories about mm -hmm. bin Laden. They appear to be true that you know, he didn't believe in refrigeration. He didn't get fancy clothes most of the time. Uh, and he dragged his family with him, as we know from a book by his wife and son, growing up in Laden. Um, he was giving up the good life in an era when the um, Saudis and others in the Arabian Peninsula who were from wealthy classes were known for kind of flamboyance and forgetting the tenets of Islam, or at least they seemed to be according to these people. Um, so he was a role model in that he followed the rules strictly. He was 
religious, he was frugal, he didn't have any excesses. Now he also had some money that he could give out to help train um, a new generation of um, Jihadian fighters. Did, did the war against Iraq in 1991 provide the catalyst for bin Laden to consolidate power, the, the push against the Saudi royal family for allowing American and Western forces inside Saudi Arabia near Mecca and Medina? Was this kind of the, the action of the West, and I'm not demonizing it one way or the other, was this the action of the West that allowed bin Laden to become bin Laden in many ways? That may have had something to do with it, and I, I do, I did, wasn't working on Bin Laden at the time, but I do believe it's true that he was very irritated by, after, especially the invasion of Iraq, following the Gulf War, uh, during the Gulf War, that the Arabian Peninsula countries had turned to U.S., especially Saudi Arabia, had asked for American help in this and Western help. That was very irritating because he felt we conquered the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, so you should be able to rely on us, real Muslim fighters, instead of having to turn to the West. So I think he wasn't as anti-West in the beginning, mm -hmm. but that really he found that really negative. And then American troops he pictured tramping around in Mecca and Medina that they didn't he had to be Muslim to go there, but um, that's what he felt it was just the wrong thing, and he started criticizing the Saudi government, and then he, was, he ended up exiled in Sudan. We now know a lot more about where bin Laden was at certain times. We've been able to track a lot of his movements for the last 20 years, but not much of this was known before 9-11, so the, the, during the time that you were working on bin Laden. Uh, for instance, it seems like after 96 when bin Laden actually moved his operation to Afghanistan, there wasn't a whole lot of intelligence coming out of Afghanistan for obvious reasons about what he was up to. And then there's reports that he stopped actually using electronic communications after 1997. So how much did we know about where he was, what he was doing from the time period he moved to Afghanistan through 9-11? Well, it's just hard to imagine how little was known about Al-Qaeda and how it operated um, in those early days. However, there was a defector that's well covered in the 9-11 Commission report who provided, he was out of Sudan and had worked for bin Laden and he talked about a very bureaucratic hierarchical organization. Um, and from that and some of his stories about how bin Laden was as a person, some of the people that worked for him, we were able to start to piece together some information about the organization. Was that a surprise that Al-Qaeda was so structured, so organized? I mean, most of these organizations are not quite at that level. I think so, yes, uh, at the time. Uh, I wasn't working on it again until mm -hmm. after 98, but what I inherited um, from people like Cindy Storer, <laughs> you may have worked with, yeah. um, was uh, this information in great detail, thanks to this defector. And then, of course, after the Africa bombings, people were arrested, and you find out more information because they have documents and the like. Did, did the African bombing, you've mentioned a couple times, these are the embassies in, in Tanzania and Kenya, did this change, other than bringing more people on, like yourself, did this change perceptions at CIA that 
this was an organization we had to take seriously, at least more than we had before? Oh, yeah, oh yes, and most importantly, change policymakers' perceptions. Because Americans had been killed, and this had happened to embassies bombed at the same time. It was incredible. I mean, and it wasn't just that Americans were killed, over 5,000 Kenyans were injured or killed. So 233 people were actually killed, I think. In, uh, I don't remember whether that's the figure for yeah. both or for one of them, but or for the Nairobi. Um, but yes, that made the threat real. And then you had the coal in 2000. It, it almost seemed like Al-Qaeda was ramping up, kind of getting more... It's one thing to bomb an embassy. It's another to go and attack a U.S. Navy ship. Exactly. That's a, definitely always an act of war. Yeah. So whatever you thought of a terrorist threat, a non-state actor threat... Um, now it was a fact that they had done an act of war. And, and there wasn't much in the way of response. In all fairness to George W. Bush, the Clinton administration did very little other than lob some cruise missiles at al-Qaeda training camps um, to do anything. I mean, reports to Sandy Berger, who's a national security advisor, seem to be paying a whole lot of attention to this. Uh, but the response itself seemed to be kind of sit back and, and wait and see what was happening. Am I misrepresenting this, or was there very little? I don't going? know. It does seem to me, it seemed to us analysts, that not much was yeah. done. Uh, the uh, Now, uh, after the uh, Africa bombings, I think it was the first time, you know, now we knew the threat was real, but what what you should do to counter it was unclear. So the missiles were lobbed at the training camps. And, um, so I, I don't know if, since this was a new experience for policymakers, I don't know how to judge that. Mm -hmm. I was surprised when nothing was done after the coal attack. Right. Well, it, particularly, I mean, I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but Al-Qaeda came right out and said they did it, at least relatively soon yes, thereafter. They so it wasn't this question of can we attribute... Uh, attribution, they, they bragged about it. Exactly. Uh, th that was later, uh, after Bin Laden's son was married, they had a video and a, a poem <laughs> about how great that was. So w when the Bush administration comes in, I'm, I'm not going to pick on them more than, well, I am a little bit, but can we can we argue that there was a bit of a Cold War mindset with many of the top players within the Bush administration. You have Condoleezza Rice, who had a PhD in Russian studies, Dick Cheney, who had been SecDef and been White House Chief of Staff under presidents during the Cold War time period. You know, Bush Sr., of course, was the last Cold War president. Do you, did you almost see a regression from someone like Sandy Berger, who may have been taking this a little seriously, to people who just didn't have terrorism on their minds? I think that's probably true. Uh, I don't can't really judge uh, myself, but that was the impression that I got. Again, it's very, very difficult. And maybe even today, if we didn't have terrorism as such a major issue, wouldn't country issues be more important? I mean, uh, they have armies mm -hmm. bigger than the Mujahideen. Um, they have nuclear weapons. I mean, maybe terrorists will get them someday, but right now they don't. So it's definitely a higher priority. And a person brought up on that really can't. It was very, very difficult, even through Clinton and Bush, t 
to conceive of what a non-state actor mm-hmm. could really do. Well, I guess in, in hindsight, we know now what they can do because of 9-11, but I, 9-11 comes to talk about lack of imagination, but how could you imagine this level of destruction? Certainly not after the coal and after the embassy bombings. Those seem like kind of what we'd seen in Beirut before or other things like it. Exactly. And so uh, I, we analysts object to the term lack of yeah. imagination. I'm, yeah, I know. Because you could imagine you. almost anything, yeah. couldn't you? You could imagine hijackings. Yeah. Um, but the type of hijackings we'd known about um, were placing demands. Um, we knew about a threat maybe to have a, a plane with a bomb on it hit the CIA building. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out later. but um, So we knew about that, but it was not blowing up planes in air, definitely. Uh, you'd heard of an awful lot of things, so you could imagine a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of things. We had the Millennium Plot where um, the terrorists were going to shoot up people in, uh, in Jordan place a bomb at uh, LAX. Um, so that was what we were familiar with. Right. The, the first cabinet-level meeting about the threat posed by al-Qaeda of the Bush administration actually took a place literally a week before 9-11 on, on September 4th. And this is even though there had been fairly significant warning in August, which I'm going to ask you about certainly in a second. But there were other warnings, too. There were bin Laden planning multiple operations in April, Bin Laden attacks may be imminent in June. Planning for Bin Laden attacks continues in July. Threat of impending attack to Al-Qaeda continued indefinitely in the very beginning of August. These were all from CIA. And on top of this, in June 2001, Al-Qaeda actually released a propaganda video strongly implying its responsibility for the coal attacks that we talked about and calling for more anti-American attacks. Um... And we also knew, I'm, I'm going to get to a question in a second, I'm just kind of set this up for the listener. We knew that uh, Zacharias Masawi, uh, who uh, was in FBI custody at this point in Minnesota, he'd been practicing flying a 747. Um, we knew that Al-Qaeda's soon-to-be hijackers, two of them uh, were known by CIA to be in the United States. So we knew that some of these people that were working for Al-Qaeda seemed to be in the United States. And then you issued... A warning on August 6, 2001. Now this is, I don't know if it's famous or infamous at this point. Uh, most listeners will at least heard about this, but maybe now they're hearing for the first time that you were the author of the Bin Laden determined to strike in the United States warning memo that went up to Condoleezza Rice and then to brief the president by Mike Morrell. Um, and and you, can, you can get this online for the readers. Uh, it's barely redacted, just kind of knocking out sources more than anything else. But there's certainly things that stand out. Uh, talk about the World Trade Center bombing. You even mentioned the World Trade Center in here. Talk about retaliating in Washington, New York, Washington. You talk about hijacking. Um, talk about the millennium plot that he's long far thinking. Uh, one of the lines in here I want to read, it says, Nevertheless, FBI information since that time indicates patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks, including recent surveillance of federal buildings in New York. Now, I know there's not a smoking gun here. I know you're not going to say on September 11th, they're going to hijack planes and run them into buildings. You didn't say that. You say you haven't been corroborate most of this intentional reporting. But how, again, this is all hindsight, and you're the author of this, but I want to ask you, how could you have been more 
here it comes, guys. Please, for the love of God, pay attention. And I know that's a weighted question, but I just want you to kind of talk a little bit about this. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say that we call these corporate products yeah. yes. since they go through layers of review, right. including Mike Morell coming back with comments. And the FBI uh, provided us with, you know, we coordinated on it and provided us with some of the information, like 70 full field investigations. Right, which, again, another line that I have two exclamation points next to uh, that uh, there's investigations that are all considered bin Laden related. Um, but go, sorry, go ahead. But as you can see, all summer we'd been warning, but we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. So we get this, we're asked to write, what about the United States? But we don't have anything concrete. We only have this background. So that's what we're, it's not a background piece, but it's not a warning piece either. Mm-hmm. Um, it's telling you intent capability and there may be something going on right now i think it might not have been written in a way that that didn't tell policymakers get scared although we had all those other things Mm -hmm. all summer long and in the 9-11 commission report chapters systems blinking red it says we wrote 40 pdbs for senior policymakers um, and you mentioned some of those topics. Mm-hmm. It may have been postponed, but no, it's still going forward at some point. Um, they're serious. It's not just a bluff. And there's been these menacing videos and so forth out of Al-Qaeda. So what about the U.S.? So what we could say was bin Laden wants to hit the U.S., um, and even if he didn't do it yet, it doesn't matter because in Nairobi, they were taken down and still did it. Okay, have they tried to do it? Well, some people say they were asked to do it. Ahmed Rassam said he was going to attack and he was asked to do other stuff. So that was, and that information was recent at mm-hmm. the time. That was the LAX bombing yeah, you're talking about? It was more than the LAX. Yeah. There was information that summer. Um, just before 9-11, or, you know, by July or so, there was more information from Ahmed Rassam. So, um, but we didn't have anything concrete. We could only say, well, there's suspicious activity going on. So essentially what you had there was a feeling, a vibe, and it's not really good analytic tradecraft to put in vibes, right. but nonetheless, there was something in the air. But a policymaker needs something that's immediately actionable. So I don't want to forgive them for not <laughs> acting or not turning, you know, getting the FBI on the phone, like, what is this? What's going on? And there was, you know, there's a separation between what CIA can do, which is overseas stuff, and what FBI can do, which is in the United States, Mm -hmm. hence the coordination with the FBI on this. So it was only so far that we could go. The policymakers had to want to do something. So I don't know what was in their minds. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do say they thought it was historical. Well, right, which seems really odd. E- yeah. Because the things happened earlier that I mentioned, you know, everything 
that you put in right. a news article like happened before you wrote it. <laughs> but uh, there may have been some other way we could have written it. That's what I mean. I go over and over in my mind because it bothers me that you could have looked into it, but you didn't. So could I have said, or we as a corporate pro have said, all these things you've been hearing over the summer could be a plot in the U.S. Then maybe it would have resonated. I don't know. Right. I, it's extraordinary that after all these warnings, and this is a completely human response that you're now thinking for the last 15 years about how could I have written this differently? How could I have made them pay attention to this? And, and uh, no one else is blaming you guys. I can, I can assure you that. I mean, I think um, it, 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 it's, it's human nature to go, what could I have done differently? Because you were at, you were in the morning of 9-11, you were at CIA headquarters. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and CIA headquarters was potentially a target. That was, you know, didn't know where those other planes were going at that point. That's correct. And we were really nervous because we did know about that earlier plot to have a plane at the CIA building. Now we know, we knew they hit buildings. The Pentagon had just been hit. And there were rumors that it was a bomb at the State Department. It was unbelievable. And you, you most of CIA was evacuated. Right, but not the counterterrorism right. analysts that were thought to be still needed at their desks. I mean, would you have left anyway? I mean, it was, I mean a lot of other people I've no. talked to say, yeah, said that they wouldn't have left. You feel a sense of duty. Yeah. I said, let me go to the restroom <laughs> in case I'm caught in the rubble <laughs> before I start writing some talking points. You, you, you at least will have an empty bladder if you have to dig your way out of rubble. <laughs> what, one, one thing I thought was really interesting uh, is the misperceptions on both sides us toward bin Laden and then UBL toward the United States, because everything I've read, it looks like bin Laden assumed the United States would only respond to 9-11 with cruise missiles, with maybe a Kosovo-style bombing, but not a full invasion. I mean, how, knowing what you know about him, as you'd studied him, for how did he misinterpret American response so dramatically? I think because he had a mindset that wanted to misinterpret yeah. the United States. And we had given him some grist for that after Vietnam. Um, he, you know, I don't think he really studied American history that much, but he was familiar with some um, cyclical isolationism. Well, and Somalia kind of must thing. have certainly. And, and just yeah. and that Somalia, that 18 people were killed, then we won't have anything to do with it anymore. So it was like, and we pulled out of Beirut, of course, he made a big deal about that, but there were high, very high yeah. casualties in Beirut. Um, so he misinterpreted these as that we were a chicken and that we could only take so much. That yes, we had a big army, um, but we would give up under enough pressure. Were you surprised? A lot of people assume that bin Laden would make a last stand at Tora Bora, like kind of hunker down in the mountains and go out shooting. Were you surprised, as studying as much as you did, that he tried to escape, that he wanted to live and fight another day? Or were you just, were you thinking, you know, he's all ready to send other people to their deaths, but not necessarily ready to die himself? Well, I guess uh, the latter point, mm. I, I had that feeling. I couldn't prove it. Because he definitely showed himself as willing to sacrifice, but did he really do it? 
at the Battle of Jaji in Afghan in the Afghan War did he he was wounded but you know like something happened to his arm yeah. I mean <laughs> I got the impression I but I don't want to necessarily make him as not courageous because obviously he knew people were out to find him mm-hmm. out to catch him out to kill him whatever uh, they knew he knew that so he and he had given up everything for this cause that he believed in. In 2002, you joined an interagency task force to kind of, was you known, you, at this point you knew you lost Bin Laden and you got in a way at Tora Bora. You tried to figure out ways to track him down, to, to kind of set the, the foundation that would about 10 years later lead to his eventual, uh, let's call it killing, for lack of a better word. I mean, no, no, they didn't catch him. Um, what were some of the baselines that you focused on? What are some of the ways you thought you could track Bin Laden down? Um, communications, family, you know, links to other Mujahideen. What, what are kind of some of the parameters that you were working with? Him? Well, I think you've said it right. I mean, links to other Mujahideen, uh, family members. Now, we knew he didn't communicate electronically, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but where he had, he had protectors in Afghanistan, like the ha- ha- Haqqanis, we also looked at patterns of other people who disappeared, like Pablo Escobar or uh, Eric Rudolph. How did they hide? Um, we did ha- have some people come talk to us, talk to this working group um, about patterns of these other um, fugitives. And they mentioned that you know they didn't necessarily change residences every night. Mm-hmm. They might stay in a place. So that was an interesting thought, but where? And we thought, would he uh, disguise himself, shave his beard off or something? How could he hide since he was relatively tall and distinctive looking? But so all these things circulated, um, you know, whether distant family members, whether other Mujahideen. So Mm -hmm. uh, there were maybe that groundwork helped somebody. I'm not sure because it took many, many years more to find it. Well, I mean, if anything, it does the the work that, you know, won't lead to answers, you know, perhaps. I mean, maybe it's just as important to uh, go through the dead ends and get those out of the way so that the follow-on forces, uh, if you use a military term, don't have to make the same mistakes later on. One of the ways that really the only way Bin Laden was able to communicate with the outside world was through videotapes. And, and if those old enough to remember on Al Jazeera and other places. Uh, were you involved in analyzing some of these? Because I know that was kind oh, of... Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, every time he said something, because it wasn't that common, right? we would have to analyze it, especially if he'd been gone for a long time. You know, uh, For example, pre-9-11, people shouldn't forget that he was kind of... He was kept from saying anything. I think the Taliban... That was our impression, the Taliban kept him from saying anything from late 98. It's like uh, there's a series of interviews or variants on one interview, and it was done in December 98, and some of it was broadcast in January 99. But after that, you didn't see anything until September 2000, just before the coal attack. Mm. And then you saw this whole crescendo uh, pre-9-11. 
Then after that, there were only uh, some just immediately after 9-11, but then long gaps. So there'd been a long gap, for example, before he appeared in fall 2004. And that was a big sensation, like, I came into the office. Did you see? He's, you have to start writing it up. <laughs> well, because no one really knew if he was alive at that exactly. point. Exactly. Do you care about what he said in these videos? I mean, was he going to say anything all that interesting? What were you looking for when you were analyzing these videos? Well, of course, any analysis of, of something like that is, is there a threat? Is mm-hmm. there a, a specific threat that the per- people are offering? And, uh, you know, or implying some strategy or something that moves the ball forward in our analysis somehow. Um, and then, of course, if he has been missing, then is there anything you can figure out about where he might be uh, from the recording? Is that like based on background noise or other things yeah, like anything that? that yeah. Anything they could dredge up. Something he said, what he looked like, anything. Like birds chirping in the background, or I, I, there's stories that they—I don't know—they know brought in to... geologists to analyze rocks and ornithologists to listen to. Well, birds there might chirp. be something to that because yeah. ever afterwards they cover the background with a curtain. Have you yeah. noticed that? Yeah, absolutely. Or it looks like a green screen, maybe that bookcase, whatever yeah. it is. I don't know, but Did... anyway, they knew there was something to that. But you know, that really—I'm not sure that actually ever did anything. Every time somebody mentioned some intelligence came in that someone had spotted bin Laden somewhere, I think that they're jokingly called Elvis sightings. You had to yes. kind of drop everything you did and investigate whether that was true or not. This wasn't something that if somebody said bin Laden was suntanning in Rio, you kind of still had to stop and make sure it wasn't him. Is that correct? Well, I've read... some things would be completely ludicrous, yes. but uh, I think there was something along those lines we got one time. But uh, anything concrete, but I, you know, of course, that would be uh, more operational people overseas right. who would have looked for that. Would, would, would you think that's wasted time, or did it help to establish methodology, best practices, and kind of how to do it, how not to do it? I don't know. Anything you investigate tells you something. Like the source is not credible, <laughs> or um, and maybe there was a chain with something that seemed to be credible before. Who knows? But. Um, but it's a waste. It's yeah. more of a waste of time than not, I think. But you had to do it because someone was going to ask you, "Did you track it down?" At, at what? I, sorry, go ahead. Don't know. I, I was going to ask. I mean, this had to have been. I mean, you spent years not accomplishing your kind of primary mission. I don't mean that to be mean, because it does take, you know, years to find uh, Bin Laden. At what, what point did you walk away? What point did you finally decide to retire? Was it, was it an event? Was it a lifetime to move on kind of thing? Was it frustration? Was it just... I think it was a lifetime to yeah. move on, but I was going to wait in case they caught him, but I just left in 2009 saying, I don't know if they're going to catch him. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't, the hunt wasn't my only thing. Our right. primary mission was preventing terrorist attacks mm-hmm. or predicting terrorist attacks. What was going through your mind when you watched President Obama announce that they had finally brought bin Laden to justice? That, for someone oh, like that you, was, that has to be a moment. Right. And then we're like, where was he? You know, <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. And a, a, a colleague, had, a former colleague had called me at home and said, uh, watch the TV 
It's been a good day at the office. So I get on, you know, I turn on the TV and it's all about like maybe it's something about Libya, right. maybe, you know, oh, what is going on? <laughs> Finally, Obama comes out and they got bin Laden. I mean, that was just like, it just gets you, it's like the end of an era almost mm. when you hear that. And then, you know, you're curious how, where was he, what, how did they figure it out? How cl- did you ever even remotely assume that he would have been somewhere like a Badabad? Was, was that even an idea that said, "Nah, nah, that's not it's impossible"? You know, throwaway idea. Um, being in a s- urban area was a possibility because yeah. KSM uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had been uh, caught in an urban area, so that was definitely a possibility. But there's a lot of large cities in South Asia. And it's about, you know, right down the street from the military academy, had to like yeah. hiding in plain sight. If you talk about that, that. would really surprise me. Yeah. That uh, that was definitely unusual to me. Well, you've continued to work on counterterrorism stuff now for Rand, and I, and what a, a couple of things I want to ask you about specific topics uh, beyond Bin Laden is people talked and continue to talk about why we don't stop attacks in time. Things like San Bernardino, Orlando, Paris. There's always this. Why didn't we know it was coming? And hindsight is always hindsight because we can always second guess or Monday morning quarterback things. Based on your experience that may go beyond many, many others, why can't we get in there and, and do something beforehand? Why, why can't we predict as some terms you've used actually at the micro level? Why, why are we just macro in this case? Why are we, we know ISIS wants to kill us. But stopping particular specific attacks, why is it so difficult? Well, it's very difficult to know the motives of an individual, um, especially one you haven't been following. But we also know that some of these people have been followed by the local authorities for a while, and yet they still do things. Because the moment you decide to act, it can be very hard to predict well, predictions, I mean, people, policymakers, others want to feel like you have a crystal ball somewhere that you can predict actions of these people or of Al-Qaeda or anybody else. And, you know, it's that's why we use the word estimates. You know, that's why, you know, that's like it maybe right. kind of it's a chance. Yeah, it's very difficult. And even on the um, larger scale with countries, like when they decide to what's the day they decide to invade the neighbors mm-hmm. Um, they have a plot. If you haven't penetrated the entire organization, you don't know what the date is for that plot to take place. And when you're dealing with small terrorist groups who may not have told their associates what the plan was, maybe only one person knows and says, he calls up his friend and says, now now's the go at 12 o'clock, something like that. Unless you were surveilling them constantly, you wouldn't know that. And there are laws in Western countries right. about surveilling people, despite the media accounts. <laughs> there are still some regular, I mean, you have to have some cause. Right. Um, and uh, when we're talking about uh, lone wolves, the so-called lone wolves, you would never know necessarily it's to me it's no different from 
school shooters or what have you, unless they're ordered by mm -hmm. a terrorist group uh, outside. Um, they just, one day, they're fed up and they start planning something in their garage and then they decide, well, tomorrow looks like a good day to do it. And how are you going to find those people? The one thing that does give us some optimism is that at least they catch them right away, right. don't they? I mean, it's too bad they got a chance to attack. But the authorities are now able, with what they, the skills they have learned in the so-called war on terror, they ha are now able to solve a case quite quickly. It was one of these cases in Europe. Um, my husband said, well, they're never going to catch those people. And I said, yes, they will tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, turn on the TV. They've got the suspects. Well, I mean, now with social media, like the Cernayev brothers and the Boston Marathon, it was there were 400 pictures of them from like 20 sources that it's very exactly. difficult. And yeah. every time you make those arrests, um, you've got more information, more information, and more information yeah. about more of their associates. And so it's, um, so it's somewhat gratifying that at some point maybe we can stop something because we'll have enough to know. But it's still based on the decision to attack as an individual decision, unless it's something like run by a group like ISIS. Right. Well, ISIS is getting all the headlines, but I want to ask you a little bit about Al-Qaeda still, because Al-Qaeda still exists. Um, and AQ Central is not necessarily the most powerful in you know, Yemen and other places. But a year ago, you wrote an article for the CTC Sentinel, which is West Point Counterterrorism Center Journal. And I know it's been a year and a lot has changed in the last year, but you, you wrote something interesting that to me really touches upon the difficulty of what you did for CIA and what you continue to do for RAND. I, I wanna encourage the listeners that you can find this online. Um, and you wrote this, you said, nonetheless, um, talking about how, you talk about how, how uh, Al-Qaeda was down a little bit, but you said, nonetheless, there's a danger in writing off the group too soon, just because they lack the large footprint and momentum of the Islamic State. Al-Qaeda leaders in South Asia understandably have been especially reclusive given the number of personnel losses attributed to strikes by unmanned aerial vehicles since 2009 and bin Laden's 2011 demise despite his extensive security measures. This makes, and this is the key point I think that sentence really makes a difference, this makes assessing the organization's current strength and capabilities very difficult. Because they haven't been doing as much as ISIS, that makes it that much harder to figure out how strong they are, right? That's correct, and they were always much smaller than ISIS. They didn't have aspirations to hold uh, territory, a uh, little bit in Yemen maybe, but it wasn't the intention for them to hold territory. So um, they are a small, close-knit organization. So it's very difficult to predict what they have and to make those connections. Um, and... Uh, when you're talking about a plot, as we were saying, the lone wolf is hard to predict. Well, some by organizations are also hard to predict if it involves just a few people mm -hmm. who don't talk to any of their colleagues, then um, it's a possibility that they could conduct attacks. Will it be like 9-11? I don't know. Maybe that's too high a standard uh, to hold up 9-11. We would be 
very upset about other levels of attack as well. So, um, yeah, it's very hard to follow exactly. Now they do have affiliates who can do things. I was going to ask if, if things have splintered like they have, you know, whether it's not just Al-Qaeda in, you know, the Arabian Peninsula or Al-Qaeda in Pakistan, but now the affiliates, whether it's, well, Boko Haram and others have pledged to ISIS or Al-Qaeda others, but how, how difficult it is, is it to follow what Al-Qaeda is doing because they've splintered and they've kind of uh, balkanized, for lack of a better word, uh, and there may not be central leadership anymore. Well, that's the difficulty to decide how much um, independence their other units have as opposed to, because Al-Qaeda had a model of centralized control, and these affiliates allegedly swore allegiance to Zawahiri or mm-hmm. So how much are they really under Zawahiri's thumb or not? Seems like they have a great deal more autonomy. Um, but it's um, it's hard to judge. And I'm not since I'm looking at it from outside right. now and don't not privy to some of the details um, that I might have had in the past. Um, I don't know. It's. Um, when Zawahiri designated, uh, for first it was um, the head of AQAP, uh, the Yemeni, uh, the uh, Arabian Peninsula uh, unit. Uh, he designated him as deputy. Now he's been killed. So um, he's got these other deputies now. I mean, he may have this guy in Syria mm-hmm. as one of his deputies. Um then he seems to be giving them freedom to conduct their own operations. Which makes things pretty scary. If, if Right, because you have too many to no, follow. Right. Will they be competent to do it? I don't know. So we're, we're, we're ramping up. One last topic I want to talk to you about. It. We're ramping up for a presidential election. Um, and refugees from the ISIS-controlled territories or from Syria and other places is a big political talking point going back and forth. And you just recently wrote a report for RAN that you can find online um, talking about this refugee problem, uh, whether there's a solution to it or not. And and one of the things I I thought was interesting, you talk about the fact that there are contributions of factors. There are specific, specific contributions of factors that can help us predict the conditions that will lead to radicalization of these refugees. Um, and some of them we're kind of seeing here, and I'm a little worried about that. And again, not to become too political, but some of the things you point out is things like the actions of the receiving country and its citizens can determine radicalization. If there's a lot of pushback, if there's a lot of anti-refugee, this could actually radicalize these refugees more often than others. And the same idea of you know loss of personal opportunities, meaning they don't have any way of getting jobs or getting a living. Um, and no real set program for dealing with them. Very ad hoc is what it seems like the United States and these Western European countries are just kind of saying, we'll figure out how to deal with it later on. Are we have just setting up a recipe for disaster when it comes to these refugees? Well, first of all, you can't just uh, throw all the refugees into a pot and say they're dangerous. Yeah. That study that we did was taking examples. I, we purposely picked examples where there, was, there were problems later, 
and try to find out why that happened historically. So the whole mass of refugees, the majority of them want to find a way of coping, go back home if they can't go back home, then move, then maybe the neighboring country so it's close enough, set themselves up, get a new job. If they can't do that, then go to some third country and try to get started again, get the kids in school, somehow cope. But there are so many obstacles. And in the cases of radicalization, which was still a minority of the people who were refugees, you had them losing any way to cope. The countries often put restrictions on them attending school, um, especially higher education. So if the UN didn't provide something, or if they were settled in, uh, in uh, camps, they were too far from anything that offered them any opportunities but the camp environment, which prepared them for no jobs that were really viable in the outside mm -hmm. world. Um, if they weren't camps, which the majority of them now are in urban areas, then that was fine up to a point. But then the uh, prices start going up, the money that they're given from UNHCR or other charities um, doesn't go far enough, or they have to, in order to go to high school, you have to take three buses across town. Right. So this gets, builds up irritation. I can't function. And prejudice definitely is a, can be a factor. And that's what the extremists are using in their propaganda. So like you, you're walking down the street and somebody looks at you funny. The terrorist propaganda will say, remember when someone looked at you right. funny? Well, there's something you can do about that. Turn back to Islam. Well, what kind of Islam? Just go to the mosque talk to the imam, no, we have the answer, we have the right kind of Islam, and that's see, they're not real Muslims mm -hmm. there at that mosque, you have to, and I'm using a Muslim example, but there have been other groups as well that have had this problem, Rwanda is a telling example. Um, so that builds on it, builds it up, or, or creates a narrative that we have always been picked on and the only solution is violence. So you want to keep people away from that. And one of the ways is being receptive of right. it. Another way is there's an international plan by the UN, a couple of UN agencies, and they're working with NGOs. And that has many of the right things in it about the Syria crisis, how to provide um, for communities. One thing that happened was refugees move into a community, but they get, you know, food, the equivalent of food stamps, and the people living in the community don't. They get a school, but the community doesn't. So, what the UN is trying to do now is make sure that the community gets a school, the community gets water, and then you take the refugees in and share it with them. So, the goodies go around to all. And that cuts down on resentments. The only trouble is, of course, these plans are never completely funded. So the question is, you know, every charity, every appeal never gets completely funded. Right. But there are certain key pieces of this plan that should be funded, and that includes things like that 
working with the communities, things like preparing people for real jobs. Psychosocial counseling is another one that's often not funded much at all. Mm -hmm. And when you think about these children coming out of these war situations, or the adults as well, um, but especially the young people, they have seen death, they have had bombs falling on their heads, they may have been injured, and they need to talk to somebody right. about that. They need to put that in, you know, in perspective, like what, how can I plan for a better future? Well, and that should resonate with, with most, most people around here because there's been so much talk about soldiers coming back with PTSD and not being able to reassimilate into society. And going and shooting stuff. I mean, the, the, there was a shooting by a, a U.S. soldier recently right. suffering from PTSD. And the idea that these kids or these refugees who have seen some of the nastiest war, whether it's through ISIS or through the Assad regime, using chemical weapons against them, they, they have to be assumed to have the same kind of psychological problems. That's correct. And they do. And uh, it doesn't mean like we don't want all the veterans to be thought of as a threat. Right. They're not all a threat either. But they do need the help, so the money has to go to the right things. Right. And I'm not representing any charity yeah. or anything um, in this. Just think about it when you're divvying the money up, you know, how much for this, how much for that. Because it's not the food and stuff first. I mean, except, of course, in Aleppo or whatever. But um, that's often taken care of, you know, maybe not quite enough. But it's the other, like, how do you create a future? And that's what everybody wants because they they. They'd rather have their old life back, but if they can't, how can we move on? And I also don't subscribe to the idea just because a couple of people infiltrated refugees fleeing a country that, that makes that whole group of millions of people a threat. That's called smuggling. Yeah. That's called human trafficking or whatever, and there's always been smugglers, and they're always going to take advantage of whatever they can do. But it doesn't mean that that mass of refugees is a threat in itself. Well, I want to ask you, there's an argument from one side or the other that we're just letting refugees into the United States willy-nilly with no real screening. And it's always like, we need to screen them better. As far as I know, the screening process is pretty extensive already. I can't speak to that myself, but from what I understand, from what I've read, it is. It's very strict, and it takes a couple of years for a person to get through. And they try to vet them with... Uh, did you know this person? Was he really a shopkeeper in a city in Syria or whatever? And so they have proved who these people are before they let them in. And they have been waiting and anxious and they, you know, they've been observed and they're also helped when they get here. They're not just sent and left to fend for themselves. A, a local organization helps them out, meets with them. You know, do you need anything? Now, I just heard something the other day that maybe it's supposed to end after six months, the mm. money at least, right. but these people that are helping them just don't let them float. We did it for the Vietnamese boat people. We can do it for these people. Well, and there, were, there wasn't a lot of arguments about we're letting Viet Cong into the country. And I think that, you know, again, to, to, to editorialize a little bit, I, the fear is getting in the way of logic in some of these circumstances. Yes, because the people who want to come to the United States, they're generally, they're not anti-American. No. They wouldn't have wanted to come yeah. here for the most part. Um, and they have been observed for quite a while before they are allowed to come in. Well, Dr. Barbara Sood, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Uh, you can find some of her writings uh, on the RAND website as well as 
other places like the CTC Sentinel from West Point. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week.